On this episode of China Unscripted, China could invade Taiwan sooner than you think. Japan is key to defending Taiwan, but only if the U.S. gets its act together. Welcome to China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhang. And I'm Matt Ganesta. Joining us today is Dr. Robert D. Eldridge. Dr. Eldridge is an expert on Japan security and diplomacy. He's a senior researcher for the Japan Forum for Strategic Studies in Tokyo. Thank you very much for joining us today. My, my pleasure. It's great to see you all again. Yeah. I mean, there's even since the last time we talked, there's been some big changes in Japan. Uh, it's, it's amazing to see how quickly... The, well, I guess it hasn't been quickly, but the shift from like the, you know, very staunch support for the pacifist kind of uh, constitution Japan has. And now we're seeing uh, like really like some big strides towards uh, militarization, specifically geared towards China. How is this being received? I Yeah, in general, among the Japanese public, this has been, uh, you know, a long time coming. The Japanese public... I think in many ways is ahead of the Japanese politicians in their, in their thinking, uh, you know, whether it's on, uh, you know, Taiwan related issues or the threat that, that China poses to Japan and the region, uh, or the importance of the U S Japan Alliance in general, the public is well ahead of the politicians. It's the politicians who've been slow to, um, to really update the alliance and update Japan's national security policies. So what was it that made the change for the, the Japanese population and why has have the politicians been slow to react? Yeah, well, politicians, they have a lot of different uh, reasons for, you know, being cautious on China. As you know, many politicians, uh, not only in Japan, but in other countries, the U.S. as well, you know, have done uh, quite a lot of business with China. And so they're reluctant to uh, anger China. Um, so in some cases, uh, those politicians here in Japan have been uh, really slow to uh, address those matters. Um, also, uh, within Japan, there's a, a coalition government. Uh, it's a two-party uh, government, uh, the Liberal Democratic Party being the largest, uh, but a, a smaller party that has historically been uh, pro-China and close to China called uh, Kolmato, or Clean Government Party. Um, being in the coalition, they've acted as a break, um, you know, like a foot break on, on uh, the Japanese government from uh, pursuing a more robust security policy vis-a-vis -vis China uh, or with regard to uh, possibly amending or changing the uh, post-war constitution. As far as the general public goes, again, I, I go back to my earlier comment that the public in general has been um, much more realistic in understanding the international challenges and the regional threats um, and um, I, if there was a shift in, in public opinion, uh, I think it was the, uh, the late Prime Minister uh, Abe Shinzo who really helped facilitate the, the modernization of, of the Japanese public thinking about 
uh, Japan's role in the world and its need to contribute more to international security, as well as to deal with the threat that China that uh, China is. Um, so you can kind of, I think, uh, trace it a little bit back to the Abe administration and his his efforts. Um, but I would I would argue that in general the public is much more realistic than a lot of people uh, give it credit for. So you mentioned Shinzo Abe, and uh, do you think that his assassination was something that galvanized the public in this particular regard? Um, I think it increased the despondency here. A lot of people, uh, particularly those that I associate with, are um, are very pessimistic about the future now. There's no uh, leader or statesman who can fill uh, Abe's you know, shoes for probably quite a long time, maybe a whole generation. Um, whether that caused people to be more worried about the international situation, uh, I don't know if there's a direct connection to that, but to become more pessimistic and worried about the future, I, I would think, you know, you know, that's very true. So in, in terms of the public shift towards China, I'm kind of thinking back to like 2012. So, oh my gosh, that was 11 years ago. There were those um, anti-Japanese protests in China. And it seemed like the Chinese Communist Party was kind of, uh, whether pushing them or not, certainly was allowing them to happen and allowing them to get uh, rather severe in terms of burning down Japanese businesses and burning Japanese cars and products and that sort of thing. And there was certainly a, a tension point with Japan at the time. Uh, is like... Is that sort of thing uh, what concerns the Japanese public, or are they concerned about uh, a much more serious matter when it comes to uh, invasion, or you know, was this uh, Senkaku Islands or Taiwan? Like, what what is a what is it for the Japanese public that is the most worrying? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there are a lot of things. So you mentioned 2012. Uh, so uh, that was the time of the so-called uh, nationalization of the Senkaku Islands uh, by, uh, by the then administration, the Noda administration. Um, and I've written about that uh, in some detail uh, last year in, in September, which was the 10th anniversary of that. I interviewed the uh, then Prime Minister, Mr. Noda, uh, about that time and the actions that he took, as well as some of the other players, you know, at that time, uh, the former uh, governor of Tokyo, uh, Ishihara Shintaro, uh, and uh, quite a few other folks uh, from that period. Um, so, so your viewers can uh, Google my name, uh, Robert D. Eldridge, and uh, Senkaku's nationalization uh, to see that that story in more detail. Um, but two years before that, in 2010, around the same time in September, there was the, uh, the incident when the Chinese fishing vessel uh, purposely uh, crashed into the uh, Japanese Coast Guard vessels. And the government at the time, the Japanese government at the time, 
released the uh, the captain after initially uh, you know holding him, uh, and that generated a lot of frustration among the public that it was um, essentially caving into to China. Um, and then two years later, you had the outburst uh, and the protests in China. Daily, uh, Chinese authorities, uh, in particular the um, uh, you know the Coast Guard, uh, uh, the Chinese Coast Guard send their ships into the areas, the waters around the Senkakus. Um, the uh, or they'll they'll launch air intrusions uh, into the uh, you know the air around uh, Japan. So this past year, the number of intrusions was lower than in the past, but it's still uh, in the multiple hundreds. There's, uh, you know, frustration among the Japanese public about uh, the amount of um, financial uh, aid that was given to China uh, throughout uh, recent decades in the form of ODA, and that that money was used um, not only to build up China, but also to uh, essentially build up its uh, economic capabilities, which would then uh, overtake Japan's. Um, there's frustration among uh, Japanese public and Japanese businesses about being taken advantage of by uh, Chinese government and Chinese uh, businesses uh, within China, uh, and a feeling of uh, unfairness in its relations with China. So there are a lot of factors that have been building or smoldering over the years uh, that have uh, gotten Japan to this point. Uh, and then Japan, Japanese will observe China's behavior uh, towards its neighbors, uh, as well as uh, towards its uh, minority populations within the country. And so there's an expression uh, here in Japan that, uh, that today's Hong Kong will be tomorrow's Taiwan and the day after's Okinawa. And so uh, more and more uh, people in Japan uh, are, you know, want to be able to stand up to China. So the Japanese people think there's, there's an, a real risk that China would actually invade and take over part of Japan, Okinawa. Uh, if, if not the main islands of Japan, uh, Certainly the, uh, the Nansei Islands, the Southwestern Islands, you know, in other words, Okinawa, uh, and obviously the Senkakus. Um, so there is that, that concern about that. And China previously, you know, as you know, has, has, you know, called the Senkakus their own. And they've also, uh, uh, strongly hinted at, uh, Okinawa, uh, you know, being a part or having been a part of, of China. And so one of the, the fortunate things about China is that it declares what it's going to do. It tells the world what it's going to do. And so that's a clear warning, I think, to Japan that uh, China, you know, doesn't tend to take the Senkakus and it won't stop at the Senkakus. It'll continue on. Well, this is very interesting because from what you're saying, China's benefited a lot from 
Japan, including direct investment. So what, what is China hoping to accomplish by harassing Japan by flying these jets into the region, making open threats about taking Japanese territory? What is, what is their calculus? Yeah, I, uh, you know, not being a Chinese government official, it's hard to, uh, to know, but, um, for example, with the Senkakus, uh, there are five islands that are make that make up the Senkakus. Uh, all of them could be militarized very easily, uh, whether it's uh, deploying missiles or radar. Uh, you can level one of the islands and uh, make an essentially a, a military airbase out of it. Uh, you can uh, deploy uh, submarines there, you know, if you wanted to. Um, and that would basically neutralize that area. Um, I think that uh, U.S. forces um, would pull out of Okinawa if China were able to take the Senkakus because um, for one reason, uh, there'd be um, the potential for a clash or a, cl uh, a conflict uh because they're, they're, they'd be located so closely. I think the U.S. would, would pull out at that, that juncture. Um, I also think if China were to take the Senkakus, uh, one of its intentions would be to drive a wedge in the U.S.-Japan alliance. The reason I say that is that I can see or envision a situation where the Japanese are possibly overly expecting the U.S. to come to Japan's aid uh, if China were to take military action in the Senkakus, whereas the U.S. expects Japan to take the lead in any situation like that. So Japanese will expect the U.S. to do something. The U.S. will be expecting Japan to do something. In the meantime, uh, China has created a fait accompli by easily invading the five islands and setting up shop there. It would be difficult to dislodge them. And then between U.S. and Japan, there would be a mutual blame game. And uh, essentially a permanent wedge could be created in U.S.-Japan alliance. So, you know, the expression of killing, um, you know, two birds with one stone for China uh, to do something in the Senkakus, it's killing multiple birds, you know, by doing that. Uh, and then eventually if the U S is driven, you know, from, from Asia, uh, Japan's going to be very isolated. Uh, but stepping back a little bit, even before, um, you know, military invasion, uh, I think, uh, one of China's other goals vis-a-vis -vis Japan is basically to isolate uh, and neutralize and uh, weaken Japan's um, ability to influence things in the region and internationally. So essentially, I don't think China uh, is willing to allow, you know, a powerful Japan to continue to exist. Uh, it's got to be one or the other. And China, I think, is going to want to dominate. And that's why I think it goes out of its way to diminish uh, Japan's influence in the region and in the world.
When you say that China could take the Senkakus, is this like a near-term like possibility? Like before, after before Taiwan. Taiwan, yeah. I personally was thinking it was, um, you know, an either-or and then possibly a both. But more recently, uh, particularly starting last summer, uh, I've been um, warning of a, a scenario or situation in which China acted uh, earlier than most commentators uh, probably believe. Uh, you know, probably on your show and elsewhere, uh, there's talk of a 2027 scenario. Um, my view is that it's going to happen much earlier, uh, that, that China will, will try to take Taiwan. And uh, starting last summer, I was predicting between November last year and January of this year, in other words, now. And uh, there are multiple reasons for that. And if you want, we can go into that that later. Um, but so in that case, Taiwan would, would happen more quickly and possibly uh, along those lines, the Senkakus. But if we're looking at it from a longer perspective, and if I were a Chinese government official, I would probably um, try to take the Senkakus first before moving on Taiwan. Uh, the reason being uh, what I mentioned earlier, that um, it can more easily drive a wedge in the U.S.-Japan alliance by taking the Senkakus. And then U.S. Um, forward deployment capabilities are, are potentially strongly weakened if it you know, can't operate from Japan uh, at that point. That makes taking Taiwan much easier for China. However, I think China may have other reasons to move more quickly on Taiwan, and it might do that first, or it might do Taiwan and Senkakus at the same time. See, I feel like if China were to start taking over the Senkakus, the U.S. would see its military base in Okinawa as being more important and not less. Like, I guess I just don't understand why the U.S. would would pull out at a time of such great need. Mm -hmm. There's, you know, a kind of a long history or background to the Senkakus issue. And I'm very critical of U.S. policy with regard to the Senkakus. And I wrote a book about it uh, eight or nine years ago, essentially called The Origins of the Senkaku you know, Problem. Uh, the title's a little bit longer, um, but until the reversion of Okinawa in 1972, the 77 years before that, from 1895, when the Senkakus became part of Japanese territory, the U.S. recognized Japan's sovereignty over the Senkakus. And then in 1971, when the Okinawa Reversion Agreement was being worked on, the U.S. started taking a, um, a sort of ambiguous, neutral stance on the Senkakus. The U.S. eventually returned the Senkakus along with Okinawa, um, but it returned uh, um, uh, administrative rights, but not 
sovereignty, so to speak. On the sovereignty issue, the U.S. took a neutrality stance saying that um, Taiwan, China, and Japan would need to work it out among themselves. And I find, find that a very irresponsible policy of the U.S. because it essentially created a vacuum in which um, if the issue wasn't resolved uh, quickly, uh, perhaps China would eventually step into that. And that's what we've seen over the past 51 years. And that doesn't absolve Japan from part of the blame, too. Uh, Japan has done uh, relatively nothing over the past 51 years to fill in that, that gap, um, to demonstrate that it has uh, administrative rights over the islands. Uh, it hasn't built up the islands whatsoever, like its other 450 inhabited islands. Um, it didn't build uh, a lighthouse. It didn't build a weather station. It didn't build a heliport or an airport. It didn't build a, a, um, a port for its fishing vessels, and it doesn't allow for government officials to be stationed on the island. And from an international perspective, I think that suggests that Japan doesn't have confidence with regard to its administration over the Senkaku Islands. So between Japan and the United States, there are differences about um, you know, about the status of the Senkaku Islands. The recent two plus two agreement between Japan and the United States, the U.S. recommitted itself to, uh, to applying Article 5 of the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty over the Senkakus, but it didn't get at the root of the problem, which is the U.S. neutrality on the sovereignty of the islands. And so for a long time, I've called for the United States to go back to its 1972 position, which was that Japan has sovereignty over the islands. I think that would be the greatest uh, way to deter China. Right now, it's ambiguous, and that really allows uh, might to win over um, right in this situation. So I'm afraid that there will be a lot of mutual uh, acrimony if China were to seize the islands between Japan and the United States over this issue. And then um, geographically, the Senkakus are very, very close to, to Okinawa. And the chance for a, a, you know, a conflict to happen is very large. And uh, I, I don't expect the, the U.S. to uh, maintain a presence there if, um, if China were to seize the islands, in part because I think there would be um, frustration with Japan for not doing all it could to, uh, to protect the Senkakus. But do you think that means the, the U.S. would leave Japan? Like, would they move their military base somewhere else in the region, or would they just pull out? Um, again, depending on the situation, I'm afraid that that acrimony would be so strong that 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 could lead not only to the pulling out from Okinawa, 
but possibly um, the dissolvement of the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty. And the way it's written right now is that if, uh, you know, one party wanted to, uh, you know, end the treaty, it would inform the other party. And then one year later, the treaty would be dissolved. Uh, and that was part of the 1960 revised security treaty. So, uh, so this is obviously a worst case situation, but I think it's, I think it's highly likely. Um, and in some cases, I think, uh, you know, some people in Japan would, um, would possibly, um, want to accommodate China at that point. One of the things you mentioned when you were on our podcast last time, which was in 2021, uh, you had said that on uh, Okinawa, the island itself, there's sort of some activist groups that are very negative towards the U.S. presence there, uh, and that it is possible that some of those groups are in fact encouraged by the Chinese Communist Party. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's what's the status of that now? Yeah, those groups, their um, their size and their influence, uh, fortunately, continue to decline as that that older population, that anti-war, anti-base population, uh, gets smaller. Um, with that said, they get more and more vocal. Uh, and the media in Okinawa uh, is extremely anti-government, anti-base, uh, anti-war in its reporting. Uh, today, for example, one of the two local newspapers uh, in Okinawa uh, took me to task in its newspaper for uh, warning of an, of an early Taiwan contingency saying that um, that it's warmongering by identifying China as a threat to the region. So, um, and they, they invited another scholar uh, whom I'm not familiar with, who said that there's no, uh, no chance that China's going to invade Taiwan. No chance, not like in the near future, but just no chance at all. No chance. Uh, the chance is very small, is how it was written. Uh-huh. Okay. So um, my, my sense is that the anti-base movement is, is getting smaller, but they're still very vocal because they have the media to amplify their message. And I would reiterate that they're not suffering financially, even though their numbers are, I think, getting smaller, in part... Uh, because um, the uh, Chinese consulate in Fukuoka, uh, there's also a consulate in Naha, um, is able to funny to funnel an obscene amount of money to these um, these activists. I mean, I guess to me it just seems like it's very clear that there is concern that China is going to invade Taiwan. They they say it, whatever the scholar says. Uh, and, you know, President Biden has repeatedly said he would defend Taiwan if China invaded. It seems strange to me that the idea that the U.S. would abandon Okinawa, one of the most important bases it has, to defend Taiwan. 
Because it's just it's it seems like it's so it's such a global concern now, especially after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, that an invasion of Taiwan will happen. It seems very short sighted. Yeah, it seems it seems impossible to me that they would uh, like knowingly be like yeah, that. I mean, that's essentially abandoning Taiwan too. So you're saying the U.S. government, everything it does is an incredibly intelligent and makes perfect sense. Damn, damn, <laughs> we're dead. <laughs> no, so. I'm not saying this is absolutely going to happen, but I'm worried about it. And I'm worried that the U.S. is creating some of the conditions to make something like this happen. um, With regard to Senkakus, the U.S. needs to correct its mistaken, I call it flawed, uh, Senkakus policy by by clearing up the ambiguity ambiguity that it created 51 years ago, 52 years ago with the Okinawa reversion agreement. The previous 77 years, the U.S. was, you know, correct in its policy that the islands belonged to Japan. And the Nixon-Kissinger administration in 1971, when it was negotiating the Okinawa reversion agreement, started to pull back from that. The Okinawa Reversion Agreement in June of 1971 was also being undertaken at the time that Kissinger was having his secret interactions with China to facilitate Nixon's eventual visit the following year in February. So as the White House is negotiating the Okinawa Reversion Agreement, it's also preparing for Nixon's visit and prior to that, Kissinger's visit to China. Um, and so uh, I, I believe that um, that the U.S. unfortunately was, was worried about China's claims to the Senkakus at that time and left room for, for China to kind of play a role in this. So uh, I understand that it, it wouldn't make sense for the U.S. to to pull out, uh, but I just think it's going to be if the Senkakus are taken uh, and there's really no no resistance, uh, it's going to create a lot of friction in the in the U.S.-Japan alliance. It's going to create a lot of misunderstanding and friction uh, within Japan, uh, and um, a mutual blame game is going to set in and. You know, I'm not sure what will happen at that point. I hope the U.S. doesn't pull out, but I can see that happening. Um, and one of the reasons we're in this very desperate situation right now where the U.S. is, um, I think, unilaterally weakening and worsening its presence is if you go back to the uh, 2003, 2004, 2005 uh, discussions on on uh, the you know, the transformation of the, of the U.S. military. Um, at, at the time, the Bush administration, Rumsfeld, uh, came up with the, the plan to, um, to pull back U.S. forces to Guam, to relocate Marines out of Okinawa to Guam. That was a unilateral decision. There was no, re- no serious request from the Japanese side. Later, the U.S. said, oh, let's make this a, look like it's a Japanese request. It was purely a U.S. move at that time. And so 
by pulling back or announcing that we're pulling back, we're essentially creating a vacuum in the area. And the recent two plus two had to correct that and describe that it was, uh, you know, change in the structure of the Marine Division there uh, and that it wouldn't be going to Guam. So the U.S., um, I don't think, has a great record on, on doing things intelligently in the region. Can you, can, can you explain a little bit about the 2 plus 2 agreement and what the significance of that is? Yeah, so uh, this recent uh, 2 plus 2 agreement um, seeks to, um, I think, strengthen Japan and U.S. coordination on a whole host of, of issues uh, from you know, conventional warfare to uh, to cyber and space uh, as well. Um, in general, it's a it's a pretty good uh, agreement, I think. But on a couple of issues, um, several issues actually, I think it it missed some good opportunities. So f- before we get into that, like the the two and the other two, like what is for our viewers who haven't heard of two plus two, like what? Okay. What are those things? Right. So uh, two plus two uh, is a essentially abbreviation for the uh, the foreign minister and defense minister of Japan and uh, their U.S. counterparts. So um, U.S. Secretary of State and and U.S. Secretary of Defense uh, that would meet um, part of um, you know within the framework of of the alliance, in this case, the U.S.-Japan alliance, under the uh, Security Consultative Committee, the SCC. Uh, and uh, they would, um, you know, either update agreements or come up with, uh, you know, the road ahead for strengthening uh, the relationship, uh, you know, between the two uh, militaries. Um, and it's not... Uh, 100% limited to military matters. It'll include other, other, other matters as well. But it's generally, uh, you know, diplomacy and military focused. And in this case, we're at, a, we're at a really key juncture where I think more than at any point in our histories, uh, the two countries are seeing the region, um, you know, quite similarly, if not identically, um, whether it's the threat from North Korea, uh, from China, uh, and, uh, you know, Russia as well. Uh, so I think the viewpoints are very, very aligned, but the, the, um, the thinking about, you know, what's needed to, you know, accomplish the goals to me didn't go far enough, uh, as it could have. So one example would be on, on shared use of, of U.S. facilities, U.S. bases in Japan. Uh, in mainland Japan, uh, the main U.S. bases are, are shared use, joint use. But in Okinawa, uh, which is uh, probably where much of the fight is going to be, essentially the U.S. remains on U.S. bases and the Japanese remain on, on their bases. And so they're not, um, they're not living together, working together, uh, or really training together as much as they could. Um, and uh, I often relate the U.S.-Japan 
uh, alliance as sort of a marriage. You know, a marriage I think is strongest when when the husband and wife are living together and not living separately. So uh, they talk about uh, increasing joint use, uh, but they don't provide any you know any really strong or clear uh, messages in that regard. Um, I mean, it sounds like the U.S. and Japan need some marriage counseling. Or some hand-holding, I think. Um, I've been calling for uh, shared-use, joint-use for more than two decades and have published commentaries from the early 2000s on that. Um, it's taken a long, long time to get to this point, but there's still a long ways to go. Within uh, the U.S. Marine Corps and Navy, uh, there's a, a organization, a structure called a MU. Uh, Marine Expeditionary Unit, and it's generally uh, comprised of about three ships uh, with about, you know, 2,000, 2,200 Marines. Uh, for a long time, I and other, uh, you know, former uh, Marine officials have been calling for uh, a multilateral MU in which other countries can c contribute, you know, ship and personnel and create MUs that would operate in the region. Uh, unfortunately, this two plus two doesn't, you know, doesn't call for that. Um, the U.S. only has one MU in the Indo-Pacific region. We have six back in uh, the Western Hemisphere, three on the West Coast, three on the East Coast. But we only have one in this region. And as you know, this region is 52% of the Earth's surface. So one mew can't do all that. And you need at least three mews to be able to, to operate efficiently because when one mew is out to sea, the next mew is getting ready, is getting trained. And the one that just finished its deployment is you know getting checked and, and the personnel are you know, uh, taking vacations, doing everything they need to do. So it's a continuous rotation. We don't have that in the Indo-Pacific. So our presence is very, uh, you know, weak and limited, I think, and not as robust as it could be. So the two plus two, in my opinion, should have uh, called on Japan uh, to, uh, you know, to, to submit or to, um, you know, supply uh, ships and personnel. Uh, just like the Quad, and maybe AUKUS uh, should do as well. So it's very easy now to create a multilateral MU. And so we, I think we missed that opportunity. Uh, I mentioned before the Senkakus. The U.S. reaffirmed its commitment to defend the Senkakus under Article 5. Um, to me, though, every time that U.S. leaders and Japanese leaders meet, um, and you may have seen this in, in previous interactions, and most recently when Kishida met with Biden, that was reaffirmed again. Um, it's very odd that two allies need to reaffirm something that is well understood. And in 1971, uh, in the Senate, at the time of the ratification uh, and the deliberations on the uh, Okinawa Reversion Agreement, 
the Senkakus, you know, fall under Article 5. That was clear. That was made clear by a State Department official in the Senate. And yet, Japan has to ask each time there's a, a senior meeting to, for the U.S. to reaffirm that. If you're watching that from the outside, you tend to wonder just how solid the U.S.-Japan relationship is when the two countries, or particularly the U.S., needs to reaffirm that it's committed to defending the Senkakus under the uh, U.S.-Japan Security Treaty. If you were uh, a company president and you're meeting with another company president, you don't you don't uh, show the contract with that company each time and ask him or her, you know, is this contract still valid? Yet Japan's leaders um, want to do that each time with uh, the U.S. Um, so my point is that the U.S. by by not fully committing um, to respect Japan's sovereignty over the islands um, causes a lot of confusion within Japanese policymaking circles, among the public, and it sends a very bad message to China and to the international community. It kind of reminds me of what's happening with Taiwan and you know, the fact that the whole strategic ambiguity thing that the U.S. has had as policy for many years is just creating a lot of uncertainty and confusion. And it's gotten kind of weird, too, because every time someone asks President Biden, like, you know, will you defend, will the U.S. defend Taiwan? He's like, yes, yes, we will. And then the White House is like, what? Is what we're just saying? We're not changing the status quo, mm-hmm. right? It's like, a, it's a pretty weird walk back. I mean, are we mm-hmm. seeing that also with Japan or is it, is it different, like weird in a different way? Um, it's to me, it's just weird that this discussion has to be held in the first place. Um, it got weird in the mid 1990s. Um, the, uh, the Clinton administration, uh, and the embassy in Tokyo at the time kind of, uh, muffed up the understanding of, uh, the obligations uh, towards the Senkakus at that time. And that caused a lot of panic in Japan about uh, what the U.S. was going to do. And, you know, if you remember, a lot of the same players uh, that we have now in, in the Biden administration were active in the Clinton administration at that time. So they, they fumbled uh, badly and they caused Japan to have some uh, serious concerns about U.S. intentions. So since the, ni- the mid-1990s, specifically 1996, um, uh, Japan has felt a need almost continuously to make sure the U.S. is really committed to uh, defending the Senkakus. Let's see, another, another issue that came up in the 2 plus 2, um, which was important but uh, left me with a couple of questions, was that uh, within Japan, there's a a real concern about the uh, application of the nuclear umbrella uh, vis-a-vis Japan, Uh, in part because of, of, um, of, you know, Russia's um, statements about uh, intending to use 
you know, tactical nuclear weapons in, in uh, Ukraine. So many Japanese felt that, um, that Biden didn't do enough to stand up to, to Russia at that time. And so they wonder if uh, there's a similar move in East Asia, whether the Biden administration will uh, truly defend Japan. So uh, at this time in the, um, in the two plus two, uh, the U.S. Uh, made clear that um, the defense of Japan included nuclear weapons. And the U.S. really doesn't talk about that too much. And uh, one of the first times it did, uh, but you don't see it in writing too much, is back in the mid-1960s, in 1965, the um, Japanese prime minister at the time uh, who was Abe's uh, great uncle, his name was Sato Eisaku, um, he met with President Johnson. And this was right after the Chinese uh, tests in 1964, the fall of 1964, the nuclear tests. And Japan was very worried about what China would, would do with nuclear weapons. And uh, Johnson told Sato uh, and you can find these in the um, online memorandum of conversation that uh, as long as he was president, uh, that uh, the U.S. would defend Japan, uh, you know, with nuclear weapons. Uh, but to me, I think the key phrase was as long as I'm president. And afterwards, it wasn't really spelled out or clearly written out. Uh, too much. So within Japan, there was, there's been some concern. And then if you remember, uh, in the summer of 2021, July of 2021, China, uh, or a video was, was made within China that suggested if Japan were to become involved in a, a Taiwan contingency, that, uh, China would wreak, you know, havoc on, on, on Japan greater than Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Uh, that the no uh, first use policy did not apply to uh, Japan. So there's been, at least for the past year and a half, there have been rumblings uh, in, uh, in Japan about whether the U.S. would um, actually use nuclear weapons to defend Japan. So in the 2 plus 2, uh, that was specifically mentioned. And my question becomes, was that, was that included to neutralize those rumblings, like preemptively neutralize those rumblings, um, or I'm sorry, to address those rumblings, or was it preemptive to eliminate discussion within Japan about developing its own nuclear capability? And so I'm not sure... Uh, on the Japanese side, um, you know, why, why that came up? Um, was the Japanese government addressing uh, genuine concerns that exist in Japan? Or were they using those concerns and then getting uh, the U.S. to acknowledge that uh, the nuclear umbrella implied to, um, to, remove the necessity to have any discussions about uh, Japan becoming nuclear. 
So I'm not sure, you know, what was happening at that time uh, within the Japanese government. But those are some some questions I have, uh, you know, about the about the two plus two. In 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 general, do you think the two plus two is moving in the right direction? I I do I do I just think it's too slow. Some of the things that it's discussing, it could have done a long, long time ago. Plus, it doesn't go far enough. It's little. I don't want to say too little, but it's little and it's late. Do Do you think that um, you know? Recently, Prime Minister Kishida made kind of a world tour, visited Biden. He also visited, you know, France, Italy, the UK, Canada. Uh, do you think? The, the the analysis on his part is that, you know, growing concerns about China as well as questions about the U.S. alliance? Um, let's see. I, I think uh, he's continuing a trend for Japan to develop more robust um, relations with a number of countries and to expand the the contents of those relationships to include security matters. So I think that's a very healthy trend because uh, it, it, um, it, it causes Japan to be more engaged in the international security arena. Plus, it's also a way to, um, to gain support for you know, Japan's security in general, plus its new initiatives. So I applaud those efforts of Japan to uh, expand its uh, security relations with other countries. It's very, very necessary, I think. I think the, the main purpose of, of his trip was to, uh, to get understanding of the recent uh, security documents that were, that were released uh, and you know, to get the buy-in of those other countries that you know Japan's not pursuing a a you know hostile you know militaristic path, but it's you know a natural progression of its you know of its role and responsibilities. Um, and I also think it was to um, develop support for the agenda of the G7 meeting that's going to be held this summer in Hiroshima, where Kishida is originally from. from. And so he wants to make this uh, G7 summit a huge success. So his going at this time will help them develop the agenda for that, those meetings. So I think it was a, a well-timed visit. And I thought, I think that it went off uh, pretty well for him. But so if he's meeting with the G7 countries ahead of time, he skipped Germany though. Yeah, there's been some commentary on that. And, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure exactly of all the reasons behind that. Uh, but uh, there's been there has been commentary on that, and I'm not sure if it's in the context of of Russia and Ukraine, uh, or if there's another reason, you know, behind that. Yeah, that was very interesting. Um, I guess since we kind of touched on this before, I'm just curious your thoughts. Do you think Japan should have nukes? Um, for a long time, I was against that. Uh, and uh, the reason being that um, Japan, uh, you know, haven't experienced, uh, you know, two nuclear, two atomic bombings that uh, 
that it had a unique voice in international affairs, that um, it should try to hold on to that that special uh, you know position, you know, as long as possible. That uh, and it's not an appropriate phrase to use, but it it had a card internationally that it could use a voice that it could it could speak out on on uh, you know on nuclear issues in a way that probably no other country could so I didn't want to see Japan surrender that uh, with that said though uh, you know over the past seven eight years I think a lot of things have changed so back in 2015 when when uh, Trump was exploring, running for president, uh, if you remember, he made, uh, you know, comments to the effect that, uh, you know, that it would be fine if Japan, you know, were to develop uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, within Japan, uh, among a number of uh, politicians and commentators, uh, there have been, and an increasing number of them, there have been comments along the lines that, um, that Japan should end its, uh, you know, it's non-nuclear principles and allow uh, for either uh, nuclear weapon sharing or the U.S. to redeploy nuclear uh, weapons back into Japan. So until 1960, we had nuclear weapons in mainland Japan. And then the revised security treaty uh, necessitated um, a, something called the prior consultation clause where if there were changes in equipment and armaments that, um, that we would notify the Japanese government and hopefully they would give their blessing. But we could take nuclear weapons out of Japan in the 1950s, 1960, because we had free use in Okinawa. And so uh, we basically were able to operate nuclear weapons from, from Okinawa. Um, but... So within Japan, there's been an argument uh, for a number of years now that uh, either nuclear sharing or allowing the U.S. to to redeploy nuclear weapons into Japan. Um, in 2017, I attended a conference and a uh, a former uh, Indian uh, uh, senior official attended, and he made the argument that in light of the proliferation of nuclear weapons. Uh, that it's irresponsible for a um, you know a democracy and a country that uh, honors and respects civilian control like Japan does not to have nuclear weapons. Uh, so in other words, if there's going to be proliferation, it's better to have a um, a responsible country have them rather than irresponsible countries to have them. So that was also another uh, argument that kind of pushed me along the lines that, yeah, it would be interesting for Japan to entertain that. Um, so personally, I think Japan should be uh, uh, to, to conduct the research uh, necessary to do it, uh, but without necessarily actually uh, producing them right now. So it should go to as far as it can on the... Uh, on the research and, and research side and whether it shifts to development and production could come at a future point. But um, in between that 
and the situation we have right now could be nuclear sharing or uh, U.S. redeploying nuclear weapons into Japan. So uh, you mentioned that uh, you were at a meeting with a, a senior Indian official related to you know Japan affairs, and I, I guess this is a, a point I want to ask about India because uh, India and Japan are also kind of warming relations militarily, right? And what's going on there, and what does that have to do with China? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, Japan and India have actually always had very, very close relations. Um, and uh, I think they were greatly solidified uh, by, uh, by the late Prime Minister Abe, both during his first term in 2006-2007, uh, as well as uh, in over the past decade. Um, you know, both being uh, naval powers, um, both, uh, you know, essentially bordering China, um, you know, they, they make natural allies, you know, in that regard. Uh, shared uh, values, democracy, rule of law, um, but, you know, as, you know, as we know, uh, you know, India does not, it's not, in, you know, it's essentially non-aligned uh, power and doesn't want to have uh, alliance relations, you know, with any country. You would think based on its relations with China that it would be, a, you know, a natural ally, but, uh, you know, fortunately it's got its own you know, views with regard to that. Japan's been able to facilitate, I think, uh, India's um, activities with the U.S. and with Australia um, better than those two countries could do vis-a-vis India on its own. So, uh, I, I, you know, I think for the Quad to have come together, uh, it really needed uh, Japan to be that facilitator. Uh, so the evolution of that relationship, um, you know, we're seeing now with the Indian Air Force training with the Japanese Air Self-Defense Force, uh, as well as other interactions as well. So um, I think it's a natural progression. Uh, it'll probably take place or go as fast as India wants it to go. Uh, in the past, it would have been uh, things can only move as fast as Japan wants it to go. But now Japan is, I think, fully on board with moving relationships forward as quickly as they can go. So in the, in the Indo-Japanese uh, realm, um, I think the relationship is going to, how fast it goes is going to be more uh, India-dependent than Japan-dependent. Is, is it a problem that India has mainly relied on Russian military technology and Japan has mainly relied on U.S. technology? Uh, if we're talking about a full-blown alliance relationship, yeah, I, th- I think that would be a, a significant problem. But, um, but I, you know, I, I'm not sure just how far India is willing to go in integrating itself with, you know, you know, with the the other quad members, uh, or with AUKUS in the future, or whatever uh, regional framework 
you know, evolves in the future. Um, you know, I don't think it's uh, a huge problem for, you know, Japan and the U.S. per se. I think it's a bigger problem for, you know, for India uh, in that sense. But, um, you know, India's got, you know, a very unique relationship with Russia. Um, you know, the Soviet Union, Russia uh, in the United Nations has essentially always uh, voted in India's favor on issues, uh, particularly vis-a-vis uh, -vis Pakistan. And so India is very indebted to Russia over those matters. Uh, the acquisition of Russian, you know, uh, weapons uh, and equipment and to a certain extent doctrine, very dependent on Russia. And then also Russian oil, it's very dependent. So India is in a very unique position, as, as you know. So, well, I guess as we start to, to wrap up today, I'm just curious, in a worst case scenario, what's at stake for Japan if China takes Senkaku, takes Okinawa, and takes Taiwan? How will that change the region? I, well, I just, I think, you know, in order, Okinawa would be the, the last one. I think the, I think the more immediate threat now is, is Taiwan. Uh, the seizure of Taiwan. And if China were to take Taiwan, it, that to me changes the uh, international politics for, for, for generations to come. Um, I think it will push the United States out of Asia. Uh, it will weaken U.S. prestige in the region. It will force uh, countries to uh, recalculate and probably realign themselves with China to include uh, potentially Japan, uh, the Philippines, obviously, uh, other countries, uh, you know, Vietnam and uh, other countries in the region. So, um, by, you know, the PLA getting redeployed to Taiwan, it will greatly disrupt Japan's uh, trade and its ability to export and import, everything will have to, almost everything goes by Taiwan. And so if it's in Chinese hands, uh, Japan will have to, to essentially pay China for anything it does after that. And then that will have enormous impact within Japan politically and economically, and it will make Japan subservient to China, I think. Um, so the implications are, are huge um, for, for everybody. Um, and then, you know, if the scenario is that the Senkakus are taken simultaneously, that further weakens uh, Japan. And then it just makes a, a, a matter of time before, uh, before Okinawa is taken. And then China will say, don't worry, we're stopping here. And then couple years later, it'll, it'll ask for Kyushu and then other parts as well. So, um, I, I just think it's immense and that's why, um, the need to protect Taiwan is, is enormous, uh, because if Taiwan's lost, then everything's lost. Um, but I'm, I'm, I may be in the minority, but I think that it's, it'll be very, very difficult to protect Taiwan militarily. Therefore, uh, 
within Japan, and today I gave a lecture before a defense group, I strongly call on Japan, the United States, and other nations to um, to recognize Taiwan as as a country, as as yeah, as it is. Um, well, you can't use the c word. I'm sorry. Yeah. It, yeah. It's a, exactly. It's a, the c word. Yeah. It's, a, it's a dangerous word to use. Yeah. Well, uh, in Japan, uh, there are two phrases that are used: kuni or koka. And, uh, you know, some people are hesitant to use it, but uh, I use uh, both of them, particularly Kolka, uh, on, a, on a daily basis when talking about Taiwan. Um, the reason for this is, uh, as you know, 14 countries right now, 13 of which are in the United Nations, recognize Taiwan. But all of them are small, have basically no military power. Um, however, if not 13 or 14, but 130, 140 countries were to recognize Taiwan, I believe China would have to reconsider any actions on, on Taiwan. Uh, to me, that's the only true deterrence that's possible at this point. Uh, and so, uh, I would like to see all, you know, all the nations of the world, or as many as possible, to recognize Taiwan. Because um, without that, it's going to be a very, very tough fight, I think. You mentioned this a little earlier, but why do you think that the evasion of Taiwan could be essentially almost now? Right. So uh, I, I, well, I think most experts agree that uh, China has, um, has a military advantage, strategic advantage, uh, uh, over Taiwan right now, uh, particularly vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the United States forces in the region. Uh, some experts have said that uh, since as early as 2015, Taiwan could, uh, or China could easily seize Taiwan. And I think those abilities have only grown in recent years. Um, related to the strategic dynamics, uh, you know, Ch China's developed uh, capabilities to uh, to take out uh, satellites, and without satellites, it's very uh, difficult to wage a modern war, whether it's GPS or telecommunications. And the ability to defend those satellites aren't in place right now. And I think that's what was behind Admiral Davidson's comments back in March of 2021 that uh, that China could act as early as six years you know, from now, uh, because it was, it was to be six years hence before the, um, the systems were in place to defend the satellites against, uh, Chinese attacks. Uh, another strategic, uh, dynamic or element, uh, that is prevalent right now is the, um, uh, U.S. sharing of weapons with, uh, Ukraine. And as a result, uh, our weaponry has been depleted, uh, and that puts China at a, a great advantage uh, if it were to do something and if a uh, conflict were prolonged, that the U.S. wouldn't have uh, everything it, it, it needs to be able to share with Taiwan or defend Taiwan. So uh, just in the strategic realm right there, 
I think China's had a, a huge advantage. Um, internationally speaking, Taiwan is is isolated, unfortunately. And, you know, using a comparison with, with Ukraine, I think the two reasons Ukraine is able to fight, you know, as long as it's been doing is uh, geographically related as well as internationally related. Internationally, it's recognized, you know, by by essentially all countries, you know, as a nation. Uh, and therefore, uh, from an international point of view or a legal point of view, uh, it's, you know, it's able to accept that aid. Um, and then geographically, you know, it's surrounded by uh, eight countries, six of which, uh, you know, its people can uh, flee to if necessary, or it can get aid from. Whereas Taiwan being an island, uh, if China were to, uh, you know, to conduct a, um, uh, you know, surround the island, it would be hard for people to evacuate and it would be hard to uh, resupply, you know, Taiwan. So uh, it's very, you know, dangerous in that point, that perspective. Um, international attention toward Taiwan is growing and uh, particularly, you know, around the time of Pelosi's visit. Uh, I think China will act before that international attention uh, takes some some form. So, for example, before Taiwan is officially invited into some international organization or before Taiwan is invited to a, a multilateral military exercise, uh, China will want to uh, take action. Uh, we talked about Japan's new strategic documents um, and also uh, the fact that Japan is going to increase its budget, essentially double its um, the proportion of its uh, GDP uh, towards the military uh, over the next five years. Before those policies come into play, I can see China wanting to take action rather than waiting until Japan has a greatly increased budget more equipment, more personnel. Similarly, I can see China taking action before uh, Japan uh, creates its own Taiwan Relations Act. And there's discussions about that within Japan now. Um, and if you look at uh, Japan, Taiwan, and the U.S. In a, as a triangle, you know, the U.S. has that relationship, the alliance with Japan, and the U.S. has the Taiwan Relations Act, but there's nothing between Japan and Taiwan. So Japan has no ability, legal authority, to help or engage Taiwan. And so it's kind of like a, a ladder that doesn't have anything strengthening between it. So it could collapse very easily. Prime Minister Abe, before he died, in his article in April, 2022 uh, that I think was published in the States as well in Los Angeles Times, maybe, you know, he talked about Taiwan's ambiguous situation and he called on the U.S., the Biden administration to end the um, strategic ambiguity. Uh, but he also added that Taiwan doesn't have any international legal status. And so basically it's a domestic issue of, of China right now. So the international community doesn't really have any way to support Taiwan. And he didn't go as far as to say that 
you know, the international community should recognize Taiwan. I wish he did that in his article. He didn't go that far in saying it, but that's something that uh, I think we all should do. So until that happens, I think it's going to be very, 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 very difficult uh, to easily defend Taiwan. And that makes it more likely that China will act. Um, I think the window, though, is is short for China or narrow for China. President uh, Trump announced in November, December that he was thinking of uh, running again in 2024. I think that's probably one calculus in 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 uh, in China's views about when it's going to act. It probably would want to do it while Biden's still in office rather than a Trump administration. So to me, that means that China may act more quickly rather than later. Um, and then there have been other, other things out there too. Well, it seems like the next couple of years are going to be pretty, well, they're going to be in the history books, I think, one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Hopefully not written in Mandarin and approved by the Chinese state. Uh, well, thank you again for joining us. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing to see just how much is on the line and mm-hmm. how, how it's kind of gotten to this point by many decades of bad decisions. Exactly. Then again, according to a scholar, you are just a warmonger. So, I mean, <laughs> I mean, just because China says they're going to make, what was it? Nagasaki and Hiroshima seem like, nothing when they attack yeah you know don't don't call them out on that right the problem not china right right um and then if i could also do a a plug for uh, a book that some other warmongering uh friends of mine uh we put out last summer uh it's um we published it in japan uh it's called Chugoku no Kyoi ni Muketa Shin Nichibei Domei. So uh, a new U.S.-Japan alliance to deal with the Chinese threat or the China threat. And some of the, the, the chapter contributors have probably been on uh, China Uncensored before. Uh, Professor Kerry Grishanik, uh, political warfare specialist. Um, Captain... Uh, James Fennell from the U.S. Navy, the intelligence specialist, and uh, very concerned about China's um, uh, naval might. Um, Bill Gertz from Washington Times uh, on Chinese um, uh, economic and military activities, particularly in space. And then uh, Colonel Grant Newsham from the U.S. Marine Corps, uh, who um, is constantly um, pushing Japan to up its game, uh, particularly with the self-defense forces. We've had most of them on our show, so this is like the the Avengers movie of books. <laughs> yeah, um, all of these these fine folks have been my mentor mentors over the years with uh, with military and security matters, but. Um, unfortunately, there's not an English version. It's only in Japanese. Um, but, um, but this was really meant for a Japanese audience. And we end with a lot of recommendations about the alliance um, that some of which I alluded to before that the two plus two didn't address. But fortunately, some of it uh, 
some of our recommendations were found in the two plus two. So it wasn't entirely a bad, a bad thing. So great. Well, yeah, we'll definitely put a, a link to that in the description below for any of our audience who speaks Japanese or is in Japan. And I think, you know, regardless of what anyone thinks, I think we can all agree that at the end of the day, we really need to make Taiwan our waifu. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining. I totally agree. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You know, really, I'm thinking like his idea about uh, the Senkakus in Okinawa, like that makes a lot of sense to me. Because like if if China were to invade Taiwan, it has the issue that the U.S. would probably get involved and the U.S. has a base in Okinawa. So if it invades, if China invades Taiwan, that means it's going to be fighting the U.S. and it's going to have to be fighting Japan because it will have to attack that U.S. base in Okinawa. But if ahead of that invasion of Taiwan, you get the U.S. and Japan to be at odds with each other and get the U.S. to withdraw from Okinawa, then they can invade Taiwan without that being an issue. And even if the U.S. does come, they will be in a weaker position and they don't necessarily have to attack Japan. It limits the number of fronts in the war. I hope this podcast doesn't give the CCP any ideas. I mean, it definitely made me rethink the importance of the Senkakus, which I hadn't really thought about in almost... A decade yeah, in I some ways? Yeah, just thought it was in 12 years for that. And this is why you watch our show. Thank you. Uh, well, I mean, I think that's why Chris Chappell ruins the Japan-U.S. alliance. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think it is interesting how this the U.S. has a similar problem with the Senkakus that it does with Taiwan and mm -hmm. that it won't say that Japan has sovereignty or won't say that Taiwan is a country because it seemed maybe it's worried that it would somehow like um, Spark, aggravate yeah. China or like or, or yeah. anger China. Yeah, basically. I, I can see the headlines now. Angering China. Yeah. So then you have this timidity that uh, in Dr. Eldridge's opinion would actually cause these authoritarian like the authoritarian country of China to like have more of an ability to take over. Yeah, ambiguity with authoritarians is not uh, the best policy. I mean, I kind of like the idea. I'm imagining like all of a sudden 130 countries are like, yeah, we recognize Taiwan as a country and- Or waifu. Or waifu. And if and if the, the PRC doesn't like it, they don't have to keep relations with us. Yeah, okay. What movie is this that you're watching? Because this, is the, this, is, this is the movie that, that I produce. It's not going to be a good movie, but it will all be star. Thing. Every character will be played by Mechanista. <laughs> Maybe uh, I can get Tommy Wiseau to direct my okay. movie. Okay, this is going off the rails now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it'll be very interesting to see how all this plays out because there are also so many other factors going on. Like we didn't talk about it, but you know, there's the COVID spike in China. Who knows how many people are dying in China, What, how that might I mean, affect it's things. probably in the millions, at it, least. Easily. Yeah. So the question is, will, will an authoritarian regime that sees its population in decline and its economy in deep decline, is that going to make an authoritarian country be more aggressive? And there is some historical evidence that, yeah, when authoritarians see their weakening power, going to war seems like a great idea, actually. You mean historical references like last February? Yes. Okay. That's that's history. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, I mean, gosh. Yeah. This is one of those podcasts that made me worry more about the, the fate of the world in the future. 
Isn't that almost every podcast? Yeah, that's true. Thank you for watching Existential Crisis Unleashed. Uh, I'm what's what's the point? Nothing matters. Yeah. See you guys later. Bye.